right, let's pray and get into the word. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you, God, for your presence with us. We thank you for the time of worship, and God, we truly do believe with all of our hearts that you are great. Father, we trust you with every area of our lives. We literally know that every breath comes from you. We lay back in your hand, recognizing, God, that you are sovereign, that you are great, that you love us, that you're for us and not against us. We thank you, Father, for the growth that you provide and bring into our lives as we study your word and follow after you. We pray tonight, God, that you would be honored and glorified, not just by the way we act, uh, which sometimes we can fake, but by the very thoughts in our minds and in our hearts that you would be glorified in every possible way. We love you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, you guys, open up your Bible to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. You know, sometimes um, people say that Revelation chapter 12 is one of the most difficult chapters in the Bible to understand. And, you know, I think that to a degree that's true. You know, it, it can be confusing if you don't approach it uh, through interpreting Scripture the right way. And what do I mean by that? I mean using God's Word to interpret God's Word. You remember that we, are, we believe that the Bible is literal, it's correct. When we read Revelation even, we're looking at that as the literal truth of God's Word for us to understand and walk through. We know according to Revelation that blessed is he who teaches and hears the book of Revelation. We believe that it's important for us to learn it and if God wanted us to learn it, then he also wants us to understand it to the best of our abilities and we continue to, to seek after that. Revelation, the revelation of Jesus Christ uh, was authored by John while he was on the island of Patmos, just a little bit of, of review. We know that it was the Holy Spirit who penned every word through him. And we've seen some amazing messages this year, just going through Revelation again. We've seen and looked at the introduction to the book and how it tells us how the book is laid out. It kind of tells us what to expect. And we know that right now we are in the middle of hearing and reading and understanding this prophetic vision that is supposed to reveal to us Jesus. It's not about revealing just the Antichrist or revealing who the dragon is and all this stuff. I mean, that stuff we learn. But this book is about the revelation of Jesus Christ, who he is, how we understand him, how we see his power, how we see how God has knit this entire uh, thing together. And we see it and it blesses our hearts. We also know that within the book of Revelation, we learn of the tribulation period, which is seven years. And we know that in the middle of it, some things occur. And the last half of the tribulation period, it, we refer to more specifically as the great 
tribulation, as things ramp up and speed up. We know that we've already looked at the, uh, the judgments, right? We've looked at the, the seals. We've looked at the trumpet judgments. And now we're in chapters 12, 13, and 14. We're just doing chapter 12 tonight. But what we see is a sort of a break before we get into the bold judgments, or sometimes they're called the vile judgments. And in this little break that we have right here, chapter 12 is a panorama, a panorama chronologically. A lot of times when we read God's word, we read it and we think that everything's going to happen very quickly. You know, maybe it's a year or maybe it's a week or even a day. We're reading events and we expect it to be chronological. And we think it's all pretty much related together in time closely. But this is a panorama that deals with over six millennia. We begin to see that it starts out and it begins to talk about the time before creation. And it, it talks about uh, the things that happen uh, in the Garden of Eden. And it goes on to talk about um, just so many things leading all of the way to the millennial reign. So it's this huge expanse in 17 verses. And as we read it, if we don't keep that in mind, it can become confusing for us. So I want you to keep that in mind. This is a, a huge panoramic view in chapter 12, we, we've heard the concept of 42 months or half of the tribulation period, right? Three and a half years, and we've heard it called the, the times and time and a half, right? And that also means the same thing, three and a half years. And we're going to see that in this chapter, uh, spoken of more than once. And then when you get past this point and you get to chapter 16, and those bold judgments are poured out, we do see that speeding up or the ramping up of the wrath poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. And tonight, we're going to look in chapter 12 at three great signs, the woman, the child, and the red dragon. We're going to look at that, and, and I want you to remember that we, we do interpret scripture literally unless it tells us that it's a sign or a symbol. And so if it tells us it's a symbol, we literally interpret it as a symbol. All right, so we're going to see these great signs, and the Bible does call them great. In fact, in, uh, in the Greek language, it keeps saying mega, this mega sign of a woman, this mega sign of the red dragon, this mega sign of the child, this mega sign of the great eagle. So we're going to be looking at that tonight. All right. How do we look for clarification or interpret symbolic language? I want to tell you very quickly. The first thing we do is we look contextually at the chapter to see if it defines us, defines it for us, and you're gonna see that it does tonight. There's a couple of times where it says something symbolic, it looks confusing, and then a couple of verses later, it defines what it means. For example, when it talks about the red dragon, spoiler alert, verse nine tells us who it is. 
But there's also times when we try to look contextually to to define the sign, but it doesn't tell us in that chapter. So then what do we do? Then we look through scripture to see if it's ever mentioned before, if there's a mention of something. For example, the woman that it talks about, what does that represent? What does she represent? And so we use the word of God to interpret the word of God. And this keeps us on track and and keeps us from following after all kinds of imaginations and fairy tales. So here we go. We're going to start chapter 12, verse 1. It says, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of twelve stars. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain, to give birth. So John says he saw this sign and it's a representation of something else. It's not really talking about a physical woman that you might meet on the streets during the great tribulation. He is seeing something that represents something else. An example might be if you go to Las Vegas and you're about to enter the city of Las Vegas and you see a sign that's a a road sign and it just says Las Vegas population whatever. It's a sign, and what it tells us is what that sign represents. It doesn't represent the city. The city doesn't look like that sign. You can't go and live in that sign, right? It means something other than what it is. That sign means something that we're going to see. It represents something, but it itself is not the thing. Does that make sense? So we see John sees a sign, this woman, and... I just want to tell you that there are four different representations by women in the book of Revelation. This is not uncommon. Two are positive and two are negative. One is the bride of Christ represents his body or the church. Another one is Jezebel who represents religion and false teaching in Revelation 2. False religion of end times in Revelation 17 is called the great harlot And then there's this woman in Revelation 12 giving birth. And what uh, or who does she represent? Some people think that she represents Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you can see that logically at first glance, if you don't take it as a sign or a symbol, you can see, well, okay, maybe because it looks like here's a woman. She gives birth to, to a child Maybe this is like the Christmas story rewritten. And no, that is not what it's about. And the reason we know that is because later on in the chapter, you're going to see that this woman represents a group of people. And this woman, at some point in the the middle of the tribulation, flees to the mountains for safety. Well, that wouldn't be Mary, because Mary has lived and gone on. So then, who else is it? Is it the church? Some people say it's the church. Uh, and, and especially people who believe in replacement theology, which means that, you know, when you're talking about Israel or whatever, it really refers to the church. But the reason that that can't be the case is because what we see here is that the woman gives birth and the church didn't give birth to Christ. Christ gave birth to the church. And so, therefore, that can't really be the example or, or, or the answer. And I want to tell you what I believe the answer is, and that is that this woman represents Israel. 
This woman represents the Jewish people or Israel. And the reason that I believe that is because there are other places in the Bible that tell us these symbols represent Israel. So remember I said you either look contextually to interpret it in the same chapter or you look other places in the Bible. Well, so if we look at um, Genesis 37, I believe it is, verse 9 and 10, what it tells us there is that Joseph goes to his brothers, his parents, and he tells them about a dream he had. He actually had two dreams. This is the second dream. And what he says is that, uh, that the, you know, that there is, uh, let me just look it up and read it to you. I don't want to get it wrong. It says, then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, look, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bound down to me. So he told it to his father and his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? In other words, Jacob interpreted his son's dream. He's like, I know what this means. You're saying that your brothers and your parents should bow down to you? Now, this says 11 stars instead of 12. What happened to the 12th star? It's Joseph. He's had the one having the dream. So who do these men represent? The stars in this story, they represent the tribes of Israel. In fact, the father, Jacob, is also called Israel, right? So we see the only other place in Scripture where this refers to uh, this idea of, of a woman and the sun and the moon and the stars is here. So it's, it's clear to us that this what is what this means. And if you look at it in context, back in Revelation chapter 12, it makes sense also because out of the people of Israel, out of that nation, the Christ child is birthed, right? So out of that people group, the Christ child comes. So, so far in Revelation chapter 12, we're doing good. We've got that down, okay? Other places in the Old Testament where Israel is represented as a woman, by the way, is Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, and Hosea 2. In all of those places, Israel or Jerusalem or Zion is referred to as a woman. So, here we have this woman, Israel, crying out in labor to give birth to the Messiah. And we'll find out that it is the Messiah when we get to verse 5. Let's look at the next group of verses. Starting in verse 3, it says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth, to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In other words, how long is that? Three and a half years, right? Again, we keep getting this marker that this passage of Scripture is talking about what will happen mid-tribulation. So first of all, let's talk about the child. It said in verse 5, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. So who is the child? It's Christ. 
right? We know the messianic uh, uh, Psalm 2, verse 8 and 9 says, um, Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. What is that talking about? Time-wise, we're talking about the return of Christ, right? Uh, when Jesus was here on this earth incarnate, he did not rule the nations with a rod of iron. He came as a baby. He lived approximately 33 years. He was crucified and he rose again and we know he's returning to reign and rule. So this verse is obviously talking about Christ. In Revelation 19, 15, it says, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. So we see the panoramic chronologically that I was talking about, right? We see the beginning, we see the millennial reign, and we're going to see even more of this sort of sliding scale of chronology as we read on. So obviously, Revelation 12, verse 5, is quoting a messianic passage to indicate the identity of the child. So, so far we know a woman representing Israel gave birth to Christ the Messiah who will reign all nations with a rod of iron after his return. All right, let's talk about the red dragon. Who do you guys think the red dragon is? Satan, the adversary, right? Here we go. We're going to start in verse 3 and read this again. It says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God in his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. So who is this sign? Uh, it tells us who the red dragon is in verse 9. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast with him. So the, the sign that we see representing the devil or Satan is this fiery red dragon. And this is supposed to represent his fierceness and the terrible um, sense of evil about Satan. And you know, the reason, another reason we know it's a sign, you know, I believe, is Satan appears uh, throughout, well, in Genesis, he appears, what, as a serpent. But we know that he doesn't really walk around today with in dragon form. We know that he doesn't really even wear a red leotard and have a pointy tail and little horns. We know that's not him. We know he masquerades. When he comes to people now and tries to sway them, I think many times he looks like a million bucks, right? So, but this symbol that we see here is supposed to evoke in us the sense of evil and fierceness of, his, of who he is. Well, this represents Satan cast to the earth before creation, all right? And it says that his tail sweeps one-third of the angelic host with him. 
One-third, so what does that mean? That means a third of the angels were deceived or convinced or whatever. They were swept out of heaven, right? They, they followed him. So now we don't have just angels and Satan. These are now called uh, the devil's angels or they're called, um, you know, fallen angels. They made a choice and they followed Satan. And so that's what we see here in this passage. And we know that the devil hates Jesus. He hated him. He still hates him. He desired to stop him. How did he know about the Messiah? Well, we know that he knows Scripture. We know he does. How do we know? Do you remember when he appeared to Jesus? When Jesus went through the temptation, Satan quoted Scriptures to Jesus trying to deceive him with, with, with Scripture. We know that, that Satan is aware of it. We know that in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that Satan heard that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent, right? And that he would bruise the heel. And so we know that, that he hates Christ. He's trying to stop the Messiah the whole thing from happening. And you can see it throughout Scripture. As you read God's Word, you see that there is a constant attack on the Jewish nation. Even before the Messiah comes, even before Jesus was born, you know, incarnate, we see that, that Satan was out to discredit, deceive, and destroy the Jews. That has not stopped. Even though Satan figured out who the Messiah uh, was in Jesus, understood who he was, and may have thought he won when he crucified him, he, he has been out to stop the Messiah from the very beginning. Why? Because the devil wants to be God. And, the, and he hates Christ, he hates the Father, and he hates you. He hates me. The devil hates any follower of Christ. And I know you guys have heard this said before that, you know, like uh, you've heard pastors say the type of thing like just, you know, if you just come to Jesus, your life's going to be great. Everything's going to be wonderful or whatever. But if you have been a Christian for any period of time, you realize that there's something called spiritual warfare. And you realize that there are times when the enemy comes against you and attacks you. Not necessarily the devil himself, because he's not omnipresent, but the forces of evil. And we're going to talk about spiritual warfare in a moment. So the truth is, is that when you become a Christian, when I become a Christian, we actually enter a spiritual battle. And we don't have to be afraid about that. We don't have to fear that and say, well, then should I become a Christian? Yes, you should. Because you have God with you. He is for you and not against you. The person who does not know Christ may not have as much adversarial stuff coming against them, but they are lost. They are lost and will have no future with Christ until that changes. So he wants to stop the Messiah from coming through the Jewish people. And we see his attempts 
throughout uh, Scripture. But in this passage, the way that it's expressed is that he was waiting while the woman gave birth to try to destroy the child. So he was waiting at the Jewish or, or the nation of Israel to try to stop the Messiah from coming. All right. Let's talk about his appearance. We see this red, fiery dragon, and he has an interesting look, right? How many heads did he have? Seven. How many horns? Ten. Ten. All right. So what we see is we see this dragon who is intelligent, he's fierce, he's powerful. On his heads are diadems, so he has exalted himself as king. He's given himself royalty. And he comes, and this points back to the book of Daniel chapter 7. If you look at Daniel chapter 7, it talks about this. And we see several visions about uh, kingdoms that would come against Israel, right? And we see uh, in Daniel chapter 9 and, and chapter 7, we see that these things represent something. The, the seven heads, I'm not going to go deeply into this, but the the seven heads represent the seven leaders or kings at the end times who are reigning and ruling over a group of kingdoms equaling ten. Now what you see is you see this number in scripture. You can see the number rise and fall. At one point you guys remember that there were ten horns and then one was added. Right? And then... Uh, three of the rulers, three, or three of the horns were ripped out. Do you remember that? And so we see this, these numbers and these things rise and fall a bit in, throughout Scripture. But I believe that these symbols uh, mean that there are seven rulers ruling over ten kingdoms. And, and we see this on the dragon, meaning that Satan is in charge of these kings and kingdoms. So this is... This is him being the ruler of this world, right? The, we know that there's the power of the prince of the air, and there's Satan who believes that he has control over the world and over the earth. And what we're going to see now is his defeat. We're going to see that uh, God is going to take care of him, that Jesus has been victorious and will be victorious, so in, chapters, in chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, Israel gives birth to the Messiah to gain victory over the devil. During the middle of the Great Tribulation, things get so bad that Israel must flee to the mountains where they are supernaturally protected. Most people believe that this is talking about Petra, that there is enough room for uh, these Jewish people to flee to Petra, and they are supernaturally protected and nourished and taken care of. Let's look at the next great sign of the next thing that happens. And it talks about Michael. Michael, who is Michael? He is an angel. He's a warring angel, right? And he would be like, the, as far as power goes, he would have been equal to Lucifer before Lucifer fell or was cast out of heaven. They were both angels. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the devil and God are equal, because they are not. God does what he does with barely even a thought, right? There's no effort on God's part 
when he cast Satan out. There was no effort. He is, he is superior. But Michael and Lucifer were both archangels or lead angels. Let's read that passage. It says in verse 7, And war broke out in the heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. Did you notice that Michael started it? It says that Michael made war, and then the devil, or, or uh, he made war also, but did not prevail. So it really looks like Michael instigated this event, obviously released by God to do so, released in God's perfect timing to cause this to happen. Verse 9 says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. So I want to, again, here, here is a spiritual battle taking place. And if you will think of it this way, uh, you know, there's spiritual warfare all around us that we don't always see. We see with our natural eyes. We can experience things that make the hair on the back of our neck stand up sometimes. And we can experience things that seem like a real onslaught of evil or hardship against you that, that is meant to discourage you but we don't necessarily see the spiritual battle behind the scenes. It is like uh, behind the veil. But there is warfare taking place, and this is a great example of a huge war between Michael and Satan. And it says that Michael started it, and uh, the devil fought with him, but they did not prevail, and there was a place found for them in heaven no longer. So is this talking about the first time Satan was cast out, or is this a new time? This is a new time. This is in the, uh, right in the middle of the Great Tribulation, right? Three and a half years in, Satan will be cast out. Now you may be thinking, Pastor Jim, how does that work? He was already cast out before creation or at the time of creation. Why is he being cast out again? Because remember that Satan has the ability to go before the throne of God and accuse. You may be wondering why, Pastor Jim, and I will have to tell you, I don't know. It doesn't say why, but it says that it happens. In fact, if you remember in the book of Job, it says that uh, Satan went before the throne and he said that he was roaming about the earth to and fro. In other words, he was able to go from the earth into the presence of God to accuse. Because right here in Revelation chapter 12, it says that, doesn't it? And so it says, uh, and the power of Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night. Day and night? Are you serious? Has been cast down. So that means that Satan has the ability to stand before the throne and accuse the brethren day and night. He is not omnipresent. He, he is not like God who is everywhere simultaneously, but he can roam to and fro. So this is talking about there was an original being cast out of heaven with one-third of the angelic host. 
And then we see that there was a going back and forth over thousands of years accusing the brethren. And I'm so glad that the scripture says that we have a mediator in Christ Jesus. Right? We have an advocate in Christ Jesus. Now, here's what this means to me now in my life. That means that Satan has the ability to go before the throne and accuse me of things that I've done wrong. He can say, this guy, this guy, right? He can accuse of things that I really have done that I'm really guilty of, and, and he can also accuse of things I've never done. But I know that when God looks at me, he sees the righteousness of his son, Christ. I know that, that I am saved, that I'm set free, and when he looks at me, he sees me through those eyes of love, and so though Satan may accuse me, it will not bind me. It will not hurt me. Uh, that, is, that is a beautiful message, but make no mistake, there is spiritual warfare where the enemy is trying to um, steal, kill, and destroy. And we also know that even though we may be accused by him, that we are innocent because of the blood of Christ. And yes, we need to grow. We are on a pathway of sanctification where we are changing and getting victory over the things in our life where we struggle. But I'm so excited for this day when the devil is cast permanently out of heaven. So what this means is that there is a time during this, the middle of the Great Tribulation three and a half years in, where God will say, enough. There is no more coming before me to accuse the brethren. There's no more access by the devil before the throne of God. Are you guys excited about that? Yeah. All right. Let me make sure I... Uh, there are two other times that Satan loses access to something. So four times total. Once he's cast out of heaven uh, at his original rebellion. And then in the middle of the tribulation period, he's cast out of heaven permanently and he is banned to the earth. The third time he is cast into a bottomless pit for 1,000 years during the millennial reign. And then finally he is cast into the lake of fire forever. So there are four times when Satan loses more and more access until he is completely uh, done away with. Now, here's the thing. You may be asking yourself, why? Why did God do that? Why does he do it this way? And you know, in our limited wisdom and ability to understand, we don't know. We can't see it. But one of the things that studying this chapter again this time made me realize is that if God would have banished Satan out of heaven and to the earth only, then that would have escalated the time of the Great Tribulation. It would have caused, as we're going to see, such anger and evil to be unleashed on the earth that it would have absolutely uh, moved God's plan ahead. And so in God's timing, he has controlled these things uh, specifically. 
I love verse 11. It says, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? Uh, The blood that was shed for you and for me as believers in Jesus Christ, by grace through faith, we're saved. We belong to him. His righteousness was accounted to us by the blood of the lamb. That's their testimony that God has saved them. God has saved us. That is our testimony. It's about the blood of Jesus that was shed. It's not talking about a physical blood. I mean, his physical blood was shed on this earth, but it's not limited to the amount of blood he had in his body or the amount of molecules he had in his body, right? Because then there would be a limit to who he could save. This is talking about for those who have believed, the blood of Jesus has prevailed for them. So they overcame by the blood of of the lamb and now they have freedom grace covers them they've been forgiven there's forgiveness they're part of the body of Christ and the bride of Christ and then it says the word of their testimony the boldly speaking what God has done how he's changed them how they overcame through him and they says they did not love their life even to the death what does that mean that means that they were willing to give all They would talk about the blood of the lamb, how they overcame. They would talk about their testimony, even to the point of, even if they lost their physical life, they weren't concerned about that. And I think about us today, like, where are we with this? You know, so many times we get afraid we're going to offend. So many times we get afraid that people aren't going to respect us or like us or or whatever, and we have backed off, whether it's sharing the gospel message, talking about our testimony, praying in public, you know, and, and I really believe that this is a word for us tonight that we would more boldly demonstrate God's love to others and how it affects our life and truly impacts our life, and uh, that we would love things of eternity more than the things of this world. Amen? And then it says rejoice, and he was saying rejoice. Those who know him should rejoice, but woe unto the world because of the anger and the malice and the hatred about to be inflicted upon the world. So the idea is Satan is finally, he's cast out of heaven. It's during this, after the three and a half year period, he's angry, he is trapped specifically on earth, and things begin to ramp up, and things begin to get ugly. They even speed up. In fact, when we go through the, the bold judgments that's coming up, when we go through that, you're gonna get this feeling, this sense of how quickly things begin to escalate because now Satan, at this point, will be trapped upon the earth with the inability to have access to the throne to accuse. Verse 13 says, Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness to her place, where she is nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman, that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. But the earth helped the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed up the flood, which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. And the dragon was enraged with the woman, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring, who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So what we see here, is, as I've been saying, is that the dragon, you know, the devil, he's, he's angry, things are ramping up, 
And um, it begins to talk about how he chases this woman, who is the nation of Israel. They flee into the wilderness, right? She says that she's given the wings of a great eagle. Uh, and, you know, what is this great eagle? It's another mega sign, mega eagle. What is that? Well, the only other place we really see that in Scripture, uh, to interpret it by Scripture, is in Exodus chapter 19, where God says, I bore you up on eagles' wings. This is the sense of a supernatural transportation and protection. And perhaps the water from the mouth of the dragon causes us to think of how in the, in the same story that the people of Israel came upon uh, the Red Sea and it had to be divided for them. They were in between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, and it looked surely like they would die. They were being pursued by the enemy. But what happened? Uh, the water was divided. They were able to pass supernaturally over, and then uh, Pharaoh's army was drowned in the sea. So perhaps that is the interpretation of this idea of uh, through um, supernatural means, they were able to flee to Petra, and there they stayed, and they were nurtured there for the next three and a half years. So while all of the great tribulation is occurring there at the end, they're protected in uh, that rock fortress. Now what happens to the people who are not the believing Jews who run to Petra? What happens to the non-believing Jews at the time? And what happens to the Gentiles that are that have come to believe in Christ, you know, the tribulation saints, what happens to them? And I think that it tells us here, it says in verse 17, and the dragon was enraged with the woman, Israel, and he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the rest of her offspring would be the believing Gentiles, as well as the, those Jews who refuse to believe in Christ as Messiah. So what we see in this chapter is we see three of the major, the seven major players during the end of the tribulation period. We see the, the woman representing Israel. We see the child representing uh, the messianic ruler at the millennial reign, and we see also the the red dragon or Satan and how he was cast out of heaven at the Garden of Eden or before, and how then he was cast out of heaven permanently in the middle of the tribulation period. And we also know just from the rest of the book that he will be finally cast into the lake of fire. And so what we see is a majestic, triumphant God. We see uh, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, also God, part of the Trinity, right? We see that there is no defeat for Christ. There is only victory. And we see that by relationship with Christ, by giving our lives to him, by being willing to love him, the things that he has for us, by receiving him by faith, 
that we become part of his family, a true belonging to God, protected and safe. We also believe that the church will be raptured before the tribulation. And so that means for us that our salvation experience or, or the fact that we come to believe in Christ and profess that belief is truly important. And it's not just out of fear of hell or fear of having to go through something like the tribulation, but it's in order to have relationship with him because he is our creator and he loves us. And he wants to have relationship with you tonight. Every day, every minute of every day, he desires for you to know him and experience him. So for the church, those that know Jesus Christ, when I say church, I'm not talking about an organization and I'm not talking about a building or a name or a denomination. For the church, the people that know him, that belong to him, will not experience the great tribulation. You may think, oh pastor, we have tribulation all the time. Yes, but it's not the great tribulation. The Bible says that the great tribulation is something that has never been seen before or will ever be seen again as far as the horror that, that it will produce. So you may have trials and you may have tribulation in a lowercase t, but the truth is, is that God wants to be with you through that. He wants to walk you through that. He wants you to hear his voice and experience his love and if that's true, then you will not be part of the great tribulation. You'll be in heaven with him. Woe, it says, to the earth during these days. For people, even the tribulation saints, will have to endure so much, those who come to know him during that time. So I want to ask you tonight, do you know Jesus Christ? Do you know him? Have you given your life to him? I'd love to pray with you and meet with you afterwards and talk. We'd like to answer any questions that you have. So would you do me a favor, would everybody just uh, bow their head? I wanna ask you to pray with me. If, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't have a relationship with him, I'm asking you right now to pray with me to receive Christ as your personal savior. And so while I pray, uh, I just encourage you to follow after me. You can say it out loud, or you can just say it in your heart. Father, I come to you tonight and I recognize my need for you. I need to give my life, my heart, my will, everything I am to you. Please forgive me for the things I've done wrong. Come into my heart and save me. I want to be filled with you. I want to know you and I want to walk with you. I believe Jesus is your son and I believe he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sin. 
and that he is alive with you now, with me now. With your head still bowed, if you said that prayer with me, would you do me a favor? Would you raise your hand? If you said that prayer, I see your hand. Is there anyone else? I see your hand. I see your hand. Over here on my left, down here in front, in the back, in the very back there. Thank you, Jesus. I see your hand. Would everybody stand up with me? If you just raised your hand, I'm gonna ask you to, to do something. Pastor Brandon, you here? Awesome. Um, Pastor Brandon is right over there with the Bible, he was waving it. If you said that prayer, would you do me a favor? Would you go and meet Pastor Brandon? And he's gonna pray with you. I'm gonna find you after this because I wanna pray with you also. Uh, and just answer questions that you have. We want to make sure you have a Bible and that you know how much God loves you. All right? So I'm going to be looking for the six of you. Don't you skip out on me. Just kidding. But yes, I am going to be looking for you. Pastor Brandon's right there. Wave your hand again, Brandon. Woo! All right. You guys, I'm praying that my heart and that your heart as believers, that we are completely sold out. I'm praying that we would love Christ with such an intensity that the things of heaven would so far eclipse the things of this world. Amen? All right, love you guys. God bless you.